Comics. I will, I promise, get the show its own feed at some point. I need to email and get that sorted out. Today, though, Palace, which is my, my little side project where I talk about whatever I want, we'll be discussing Star Wars. Would you begin with Star Wars? Few pieces of entertainment can truly lay claim to the term cultural touchstone, but Star Wars would definitely be one of them. Film fans can actually be divided into two camps, before Star Wars and after Star Wars. It's always made me feel a bit sorry for Logan's Run, which came out six months before Star Wars, and was state-of-the-art when it was released, yet was rendered completely obsolete in a very short amount of time. And yet for something that is so beloved by so many, it seems to generate an inordinate amount of bile, particularly when discussing the prequels. The prequels, for those who are not at war, is the general shorthand used by Star Wars fans to refer to the three films that came out after the initial Star Wars trilogy, which consisted of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, but was set before and consist of The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. Taken together, they are referred to as the Star Wars Saga, or Episodes 1 through 6. Star Wars being retroactively named Episode 4, A New Hope, on its re-release in 1978. From the beginning, Star Wars creator George Lucas has talked about Star Wars being a series of trilogies of either 6, 9, or 12 movies in total, depending on what interview you read, and how it was all planned out from the beginning. Personally, I think the idea that the entire saga was planned out in advance, with every twist and turn conceived ahead of schedule, is a load of old hogwash, as it doesn't so much make Obi-Wan's telling of the story to Luke Skywalker in the first film as being, from a certain point of view, as it turns out to be a giant-sized pack of lies and deliberate half-truths, but this is the version that has entered folklore, and besides, we're here to praise, not to bury. Now, it's easy to defend Star Wars. It's easy to defend The Empire Strikes Back and even Return of the Jedi. Even the Marvel Comics Star Wars series, which personally I always loved, seems to have been reappraised in recent years after being mocked roundly, and is now generally considered to be quite good. But mention you like the prequel trilogy, and it's like you've just told people you've just reversed over the dog, drove forward, and then reversed again. Now, I'm not going to sit here and defend all of the prequel trilogy, mainly because I can't. The Phantom Menace has moments, including the single best lightsaber battle of all six films, but it is a badly paced, poorly made movie, despite individual frames looking marvellous. It's not even really fair to lay the blame at the feet of Jake Lloyd, or even on Jar Jar Binks. I've seen fan edits of that movie that remove some of these elements, and the film is still pretty piss poor. The other actors are likewise not to blame. 
Ewan McGregor, who plays Obi-Wan throughout the prequels, is a very charming and engaging actor, and is an equally likeable and cheeky presence in reality. He is the co-host of a number of shows where he and his friend Charlie Borman motorcycle across the world raising money for UNICEF, and in those shows not only was he a magnetic presence, even when not acting, but there was an episode where he rode through Tunisia and stopped off at the place where they filmed the Lars Homestead stuff in Star Wars. Now, McGregor never went to that set in the films, so he took the opportunity to check it out. Not only was he not recognised, but he quoted huge chunks of dialogue from that original film whilst looking around, confirming how much he loved them, yet he's never allowed to display his natural charisma in Phantom Menace. Likewise, Natalie Portman is utterly charming in other movies, yet in Phantom Menace she and McGregor rarely get to display this charm, instead being rather stilted. McGregor comes across better than Portman, but other than that, only Liam Neeson, Ray Park and John Williams walk out of Phantom Menace with any dignity. Even Celia Imry is wasted. Attack of the Clones has a better story, but is overlong and features more stilted acting, although both Portman and McGregor are allowed to be a little less stiff this time round. McGregor even gets to demonstrate some acting ability, largely because he spends a lot of the movie on his own being Sam Spade. The romance between Anakin and Padme works only because of what Portman brings to it, as Hayden Christensen, who would take over the role of Anakin from Jake Lloyd, suffers from cardboard cutout syndrome. I'm going to try and be charitable to Christensen, but unlike McGregor and Portman, he's wooden in everything I've ever seen him in. Maybe I've just not seen the right Hayden Christensen films. Clones is a much better movie than Menace, and is even genuinely funny in places. Obi-Wan scenes are pretty good, and the final action sequence is entertaining, if slightly spoiled by C-3PO being an insufferable bore. Apparently the IMAX version, which loses 20 minutes, is a much better film. Which brings us to Revenge of the Sith. Irrespective of the preceding films, I was stoked to see Sith. It was the culmination of the two films prior, and for all intents and purposes, the end of the Star Wars cycle of movies. Little did we know. Whilst I did have issues with Menace and Clones, I did like Clones a great deal, and was genuinely excited for Revenge of the Sith. I saw it on opening day with the family. Being Star Wars, the queue was around the car park, and there were a ton of kids dressed as Boba Fett and Darth Vader milling around. It was a great atmosphere. If these people were prequel haters, you wouldn't have known it from the queue, as we were all excited to see the end of the cycle of movies we'd loved since childhood. As the lights dimmed, I felt none of the trepidation I'd felt with the other movies. I simply wanted Mr. Lucas to entertain me one last time. I really liked Sith the first time I saw it, and unlike other movies, which I enjoyed in the cinema but later came to see the flaws, I still like it every time I watch it. After the usual 20th Century Fox logo, which still gives me goosebumps, Sith opens with a rather confusing opening crawl. While Sith acknowledges that the Clone Wars are ongoing, it then confuses the issue by claiming that there are heroes on both sides and evil is everywhere. This was a step outside from the usual Star Wars milieu whereby everything is black and white, good guys and bad guys. The idea that there could be heroes on the side of General Grievous and Count Dooku was unusual, but it fits in with what Lucas was exploring in these films. The Clone Wars was a more complex affair than the Galactic War as portrayed in episodes 4 through 6, with the Jedi being spurred on by Senator Palpatine, who we in the audience are aware is secretly playing both sides against each other, and his duplicitous nature presumably plays into the evil is everywhere part of the equation. The opening scenes of the film are, for me, the single best extended Star Wars battle sequence since the asteroid field in The Empire Strikes Back. 
In the cinema, I adored this sequence. From the beginning shot of one lone destroyer to two swooping fighters, which we then follow on a dizzying downwards angle, I love that it wasn't a two-dimensional shot with single starships on a single axis. Rather, it was a massive battle taking place over a large area on multiple levels because, well, space. Hayden Christensen seems to have matured and is relaxed in the role of Anakin Skywalker, and Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan is funnier even than in Clones. Unlike some of the other CG special effects sequences in the earlier Star Wars movies and in some non-Star Wars flicks, it's busy and frenetic but easy to follow thanks to the choreography of the shot that allows us to view the world through the two starships that introduce us to the environment. Williams's score here, a more militaristic version of Luke's theme, is great. Some have criticised Williams for essentially making Sith a greatest hits package, but revisiting the themes of the earlier, or later, films is done in the narrative itself. Hell, in the first three minutes of this film we've had two lines of dialogue, like S-foils in attack position, and here's where the fun begins, that deliberately echo the other movies. Also, at the time it was recorded, Williams probably thought, as we all did, that this would be the last time he would be working on a Star Wars film. The impressive thing about this opening scene, though, isn't just the effects, but that McGregor and Christensen are allowed to show some of the camaraderie they have in the -the behind-the-scenes footage, coming across as brotherly and irritated by each other in equal measure. We also, for the first time, feel like we're getting to see Anakin be the best star pilot in the galaxy, and a good friend, rather than simply being told it. I know we saw the pod race stuff in episode one, but I have to confess, I was never really a big fan of that sequence. Lucas, again, visually and verbally echoes the earlier movies with the obligatory appearance of, I got a bad feeling about this, and Anakin hanging from the elevator shaft similar to Luke on Bespin in Empire. Upon landing in the ship, we are introduced to General Grievous, who's an interesting visual, but lacks weight, the special effects in regard to him not being quite as good as the space sequences. He's also a little too broad in his actions, coming across as a bit too moustache-twirling. Count Dooku is a much better villain, but sadly he's dispatched with early on. Interestingly, Matthew Stover's novel for episode 3 delves more deeply into the Obi-Wan and Anakin relationship, with more dialogue and sequences starting with, this is Anakin Skywalker, and then this is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then Stover delves deeper into the characters' heads. Stover's novel is arguably the best of the six of the movie novelizations. Ghostwriter Alan Dean Foster's novel for Star Wars is interesting in that it predates the movie and is a historical document in that regard. James Kahn's novel for Jedi is fun and has a lot in it that was ultimately changed, specifically Owen Lars being Obi-Wan's brother rather than Anakin's stepbrother. But the novels for Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones and Empire Strikes Back successfully managed to place the book on paper but without really expanding upon anything. Stover's novel expands and deepens the characters, changing the focus of the film slightly, making it not just Anakin's story, and I'll be referring to the differences as we go along. For the scene introducing Count Dooku, Stover clearly establishes Dooku was intending to kill Obi-Wan, but was forbidden from killing Anakin for reasons he does not know. He honestly believes he's going to benefit from being in league with Darth Sidious, and watching him realise his overconfidence in beating our two favourite Jedi, and his shock at being betrayed, is magnificent in the novel. Stover also milks the beheading scene, with Anakin deliberating for a much longer period of time before committing the final act. 
The film paints the scene in broad strokes, but Christensen finally seems to be getting the hang of playing Anakin, dancing between the darkness and the light. Stover also eliminates a lot of the more overt comedy in these opening scenes, having the humour derived from Anakin and Obi-Wan's interplay. The Nemoidians are still kind of crappy caricatures, but seeing Obi-Wan and Anakin fight together on the bridge is great, making me wish Lucas had given us a proper Clone Wars movie, instead of saving all that stuff for the TV spin-offs. Lucas also has Anakin land a spaceship that, according to Stover's novel, was never designed to land, and Stover milks this scene for all it's worth as well, having it be seen through the eyes of Mace Windu, who can't believe Skywalker has pulled off yet another miracle. Filmically, Obi-Wan and Anakin's interplay is again quite funny after the landing, displaying their affection for each other. We're then reintroduced to Anakin and Padme and their illicit relationship, which should be the linchpin of the entire series, but sadly never really sets fire in the film. Stover's novel makes the relationship really work. To be fair, he's helped by including a number of scenes cut from the film, of Padme setting up the nascent rebellion, giving her a subplot, and a focus that shows her determination and grit. But whenever Anakin and Padme are together, he writes them in a playful and charming way, which he then turns darker later on. Anakin's entire focus, and his turn to the dark side, is almost primarily due to the dream he has of Padme dying in childbirth, and he becomes obsessed with preventing her death, which blinds him to Palpatine's machinations, something that is shown in the film, but Anakin's turn is generally attributed to Palpatine convincing him of the corruption of the Jedi, with Padme's fate being incidental. Stover also removes some of the more cloying, I love you, no, I love you, dialogue and replaces it with genuine warmth and emotion, proving once again that the prequels would have been better received with a simple dialogue polish. I've read that Lucas changed the focus of the film in the editing room, and some scenes in the novel are altered and switched around. Anakin only wants to become a Jedi Master after learning that there may be a way to save Padme, buried deep in the Jedi archives, in tomes only Jedi Masters are allowed access to. He only accepts Palpatine's invitation to be his representative on the Council to gain access to these archives. When he's given the status but not the privileges of a Jedi Master, it's yet another nail in the coffin of Anakin trusting the Jedi, and the final straw comes when Obi-Wan asks him to spy on Palpatine. Sadly, none of this is present in the film, which makes Anakin's choices seem more born simply of rage and anger than of his obsessive need to control everything. John Williams plays with the score very well throughout the film, but when the Jedi discuss Anakin, particularly Mace Windu, Yoda and Obi-Wan, the music from Return of the Jedi, where the Emperor tries to seduce Luke, plays in the background, and the Jedi are played very much as paranoid and untrustworthy. Lucas doesn't get a lot of credit for the ambiguity in this film, but he's telling a very politically charged story about the people in power and if they deserve to be there. Lucas paints the movie with a very artistic eye, and one of the things the prequels can't be accused of is being boring to look at. Visually, they are all impressive, but Sith is especially sumptuous in this regard. Which is good, because as much as I like Sith, it's kind of baggy in the middle. Whilst Ian McDermott plays the subtext as much as the script will allow, and he really does sell the idea that he's doing what he's doing for the greater good, there is a significant amount of suggestion that simply isn't present in the film that is in the novel. The opera scene is notable for its implication that Palpatine is behind everything, from Anakin's conception via Darth Plagueis the Wise, to Obi-Wan getting shipped off and manipulating Anakin with stories of being able to stave off death. 
It's Mick Diarmid's performance at the opera scenes that sell Anakin's slow descent, rather than the quality of the writing. One of the big losses to the film that is in the novel is a scene between Obi-Wan and Padme just before Obi-Wan goes to Utapa. He approaches Padme to tell her he is aware of her and Anakin's affair, and he's very concerned that Anakin is too close to Palpatine, a situation causing strife between Anakin and the Jedi. It's a great scene, extremely well written by Stover, and it's a shame it's not present in the film, as it not only sets up that Obi-Wan isn't an idiot, but also his friendship with Padme, as well as Anakin, that would lead him to taking care of their children. It also shows that Obi-Wan also has doubts about Anakin. Palpatine uses this knowledge against Anakin as well, inferring to Anakin that Padme and Obi-Wan may be involved in an illicit affair, and further alienating Anakin from the two people he trusts most. Palpatine is presented as being aware that it's Padme and Obi-Wan who could potentially prevent Anakin from the path of the dark side, and by causing this schism, he's setting Anakin up for his fall. Obi-Wan's fight with Grievous is also an excellent set piece, McGregor getting to be cocky and arrogant himself, and showing us a different side to Obi-Wan from the original trilogy, and one that was hinted at in the first two prequels. There's an awful lot implied with regards to Qui-Gon Jinn's teaching style, given that Obi-Wan can be just as cocky and individualistic as Anakin. As an aside, I'd love an Obi-Wan film with McGregor in the lead, preferably one that really gives him a chance to strut his stuff. After learning that Obi-Wan has engaged Grievous, Mace sends Anakin to deliver the news to Palpatine. This is another great scene, with Lucas implying that there is a part of the Jedi that are about to do exactly the same thing as Palpatine, take unauthorised control of the Senate, and only Yoda seems to feel that this will be a bad thing. The prequels are a lot more ambiguous in this regard than the original films, with the Jedi being a rather clueless and outmoded collection of stuffed shirts, and Jedi like Obi-Wan and Anakin, people who could have made a difference, being stifled by the Order. Is Lucas saying here that there is no real difference between the Jedi and the Sith? The film again leaves it to the viewer to decide, but Palpatine is very magnetic, and one can see why people believed in him. Again, the novel really expands upon the scene where Palpatine reveals himself to Anakin, Stover really exploring the idea that Anakin is very torn, but at this point is so obsessed with saving Padme and his child that it's blinding him to everything else. We then cut back to Obi-Wan, and I love the fight between he and Grievous, a much more brutal and down-and-dirty fight than usually seen in Star Wars. I also find it interesting that for a civilised bunch, the Jedi have no problem executing people when they have to. Lucas's ability to visually interpret his ideas plays into a great scene in the film, where Anakin, left behind in the Jedi Council, and Padme in her apartment, both seem to realise that something is wrong. Lucas shoots the scene with a lot of wide shots, representing the loneliness and isolation both characters are feeling, then has both walk over to the window, and the vast expanse of Coruscant between them represents their inability to reach common ground, and finally, Anakin's final decision. It's a great scene because it's all in the visuals, which, let's be honest, is what Lucas excels at. This leads to Mace confronting Palpatine, and Lucas does a pretty good job here as well. 
When Anakin arrives, we really understand that from his point of view, Mace Windu is attacking an elderly and unarmed man, giving credence to everything Palpatine has told him about the Jedi. Sadly, it's in this scene that Ian McDermott jettisons every ounce of subtlety he's had so far and becomes a moustache-twirling villain in really bad makeup. although Palpatine breathing like Vader is a nice touch. Anakin agreeing to kill Obi-Wan comes a little out of left field in the film, working much better in the book, as Palpatine has already planted the suggestion that he and Padme may be closer than friends. Order 66, however, is wonderfully executed, if you'll pardon the pun. Williams's score for this sequence is beautiful, and watching the Jedi being gunned down is quite a grisly scene. One touch I did like, after Obi-Wan is seen falling into the abyss, he's never seen again by the clone troopers or Palpatine, although one wonders why Darth Vader never made tracking him down a number one priority. Yoda beheading the troopers is equally cool, and a much more effective demonstration of Yoda's badassery than him leaping around like a demented cricket in Attack of the Clones. Less effective is Anakin killing the kids. Ultimately, this scene may have been a bridge too far, as I'm not really convinced redemption for a multiple child killer is possible, and it really does turn the audience completely against Anakin. Granted, the scene has to happen, as this is what it takes to have Obi-Wan, Anakin's only real ally, turn against him. Bail Organa's scene here is also a little out of left field, as all of the scenes, present in the novel, that set him up as a co-conspirator of Padme in setting up the rebellion were left on the cutting room floor, although yet another child death makes me wonder what Lucas's problem with kids is. I'm not totally down with Chewbacca and Yoda being friends, but it's not a deal-breaker. The scene with Padme is also pretty good. Anakin is totally convinced that the Chancellor and the Senate are right, but he hasn't yet given up on Obi-Wan. Padme, however, knows that this is the end for her and Anakin, and it's a shame Portman doesn't get a longer moment to play this out. Largely, this is again due to Padme's subplot being cut from the film. Mustafar, however, is something long-time Star Wars fans have been waiting for since 1980. George Lucas gave an interview to Rolling Stone magazine where he described how Obi-Wan and Darth Vader's conflict happened, and whether you subscribe to Lucas's point of view regarding the saga or not, this was well worth the wait. Anakin arrives and dispatches the Nemoidians, no great loss, and we get a literal descent into hell for Anakin. Perhaps this visual is a little on the nose for the character and his story arc, but for me, just seeing this on screen was exciting, and I still adore it, especially when Williams rules out the Imperial March for the first, or last, time. Gotta say as well, there are a couple of cool lightsaber moves in these scenes. When Yoda and Obi-Wan approach the Jedi Temple and Yoda hurls his lightsaber through the chest of a clone trooper, then leaps upon his body and yanks it out, it really sells the idea that Jedi and their prime are really quite awesome. Darth Vader gets a couple of cool moves of his own, deflecting laser blasts from behind him without even turning around. But for me... The scene between Padme and Obi-Wan is at the heart of this part of the movie. Obi-Wan is almost physically sick when he tells her that Anakin killed the children, and Padme's disbelief at being told he's turned to the dark side are played very well, despite some third-rate dialogue. Her reaction to the way democracy dies is also a good performance, and she's especially good when she finally confronts Anakin and her world collapses around her. Padme arguably lost the most in this film, and it's a loss to her character that her subplots, which play her as a much stronger individual, were cut. 
Also, leaving in the scenes where Anakin believes she and Obi-Wan are having an affair, thanks to Palpatine's lies, makes his turn more personal. In the film, Obi-Wan was never really thought to betray Anakin. Again, the novel really expands upon Palpatine's manipulation of the Senate and how he's been laying the groundwork for this for years, something the finished versions of the films have set up, but not as convincingly. Where the movie scores over the novel is in the last act. Mace Windu's attack on Palpatine is a lot more emotionally charged in the boot, with Anakin a lot more conflicted in regard to whose side he's on. But crucially, this takes place almost two-thirds of the way through the novel, which kind of truncates Obi-Wan's fight with Grievous and the final battle. Now, this could be because when working on the novel, Lucas may not have actually known the exact shape the final confrontations would take. The making of Revenge of the Sith by J.K. Rinsler has Lucas regularly change his mind about the finer details in post-production, using combined versions of different takes, altering the CG, and tightening up and reorganising the final sequence of events, up to locking the picture. So Stover may have just had the broad strokes and worked with them. As it stands, Obi-Wan's battle with Grievous, and then he and Yoda's escape, and return to the Jedi Temple, are longer in the film, and more satisfying because of it. Stover does, however, use the boot to make Anakin's eventual turn to the dark side more compelling and convincing. Anakin stops thinking of himself as Anakin, even, the novel states, forcing his face to look like Anakin's more innocent and composed features when confronting Padme on Mustafar. Anakin is also darkly funny in the novel, because he's planning on overthrowing Palpatine from the start. He calls him master to his face, but is secretly plotting his downfall, so that Darth Vader himself can take over and run the Republic in his own way. This cleverly plays into both Attack of the Clones, where Anakin muses to Padme that the universe would be a much better place if he were in charge, and The Empire Strikes Back, where Vader tries to turn Luke to his side and says together they can rule the galaxy as father and son. Whilst Lucas does manage to pull off Anakin's transformation to evil, Stover essentially takes the same story beats but makes it more character-driven. There's also an interesting scene where Padme makes Bail Organa vote for Palpatine and pretend to be supportive of what he's doing so they can continue to rebel behind the scenes. Again, Stover ties this in with Return of the Jedi by having Mon Mothma be on the Senate in opposition to Palpatine, and Padme likewise instructs her to vote for Palpatine as well. This does beg the question as to how many people knew Leia's real mother, and if any of them knew who her father was. The book makes it clear that Obi-Wan knows about the Padme-Anakin relationship all along, and is crestfallen by Anakin's turn, whereas in the film, he's a little bit colder to Padme and her pregnancy. The climax of the film has Williams' excellent Battle of the Heroes cue, along with the most frenetic of the film's lightsaber battles. Not until Return of the Jedi would we get a more personal battle, and McGregor and Christensen rise to the challenge. It's a supremely exciting scene, although the Yoda-Palpatine fight has a little bit more comedy, with Yoda hurling Palpatine backwards over his chair. However, the scene also has some more symbolism, as Palpatine destroys the Senate literally, as he has already done symbolically. Williams brings back many cues from earlier films, with the score from the end of Empire, Yoda's theme, and the Duel of the Fates making a comeback before returning to the Battle of the Heroes. Yoda crawling through the Urduks is unintentionally hilarious, echoing Die Hard, and his decision to go into exile happens purely because that's what has to happen, rather than an organic story development. A line that has taken on a great deal of comedy in our house is Obi-Wan's I have the high ground. We tend to use it as an example of somebody winning something they really shouldn't be able to, or when the cats are eyeing each other upon the stairs. 
I understand what Lucas was going for here. Obi-Wan is in a position where to attack him. Anakin would have to leave himself wide open. But the line could have been given a little more weight, with a few more meaningful glances between Anakin and Obi-Wan, and maybe even a don't-make-me-do-this-Anakin from Obi-Wan. As it is, Obi-Wan almost casually decides to hack off both of Anakin's legs, and as I said, it does make one wonder why tracking Obi-Wan down, especially as Vader knows he's still alive at the end of this film, wasn't a higher priority. As an aside, Anakin's immolation is always heavily edited whenever I've seen this on TV. Palpatine is almost fatherly to Anakin when he arrives, and it's almost touching when he strokes Anakin's head, showing him more affection than he's ever seen from the Jedi. As he did with the lightsaber battle, Lucas's cutting between the true birth of Darth Vader and the birth of Luke and Leia is well done, with lots of visual parallels, although I'm still baffled as to why Padme was killed off, especially when Leia says she remembers her smile in Return of the Jedi. Having her still be alive but in hiding as the film closes could have been a neat little twist, especially as Palpatine has no idea what happened to her and lies to Anakin about her being dead. Although having her die at the exact moment Vader breathes his first breath is somehow appropriate, imagine how much more potent Jedi could have been if Lucas really did have all this mapped out from the beginning and Padme was still alive. Vader's first breath is an exciting moment for long-time fans, and whilst the infamous no sequence has been roundly mocked, it works for me in a Frankenstein kind of way. People have also mocked sending Luke back to Tatooine, but I think it makes sense to hide him in the one place Anakin is never going to want to return. Wiping C-3PO's memory, but not R2's, is egregious, but it adds a certain dark humour to the whole proceedings that R2 could have told Luke the whole thing from the beginning had Luke known to ask him. Leia and Luke's theme makes an appearance at the end, a scene filmed during production of Attack of the Clones. Ewan McGregor's scenes were filmed against a green screen later, as he never went to Tunisia when filming the Star Wars movies. Ultimately, I greatly enjoy Revenge of the Sith. It's a satisfying conclusion to the saga, even if it doesn't really have any resonance in and of itself. I don't think it's perfect by any means. There are still quite a few rough edges that could have been rounded off with some more thought, and the dialogue is risible in places, but it's a movie I think has gotten considerably better with age. I do wish the motivations of Palpatine had been as engrossing as in the novel, where he really is a gloriously manipulative adversary, pulling all these strings out the Jedi or Anakin, ever truly being aware of it, except Mace Windu, who never trusted him. And Stover paints the Anakin Obi-Wan Padme triumvirate in a much warmer manner, but I think the film is solidly entertaining throughout. It's a prime slice of Star Wars, easily as good as Jedi, and much better than Episode 1 and 2, and it totally worked, at least for me, as the conclusion of the series. However, this was before the Disney buyout of Lucasfilm, and the immediate fast-tracking of Episodes 7, 8, and 9, which Lucas had recently backtracked on, and said would never happen, and he didn't really have a plan for them. This has been proven to be slightly obscuring the truth, as it has been noted that in Lucas's ring binder there were single-line descriptions of what could possibly happen in episodes 7, 8, and 9. How much of Lucas's admittedly very rough outlines will be used is as yet unknown, but members of the original cast are returning. Personally, I'm very interested in seeing what Episode 7 brings. Disney have a lot invested in this film, and while this may lead them to play it safe, 
which bringing back original stars Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher seems to suggest they will, they're also going to want to set up sequels and sidequels, and you don't get to do that without taking a few risks. If the Force is with them, Star Wars fans may very well get that generational saga we've always been promised. I don't really expect to change anyone's opinions with this little personal look into why I like Revenge of the Sith. People have generally made up their mind about the prequels. But if you have anything to say, or you want to drop me a line about the Star Wars prequels, either way, then feel free to email me on the heykidscomics at virginmedia.com email address. Again, I may set one up for this show if it becomes a regular thing. I can also be friended on Facebook. With Hey Kids as the first name and comics as the surname. And remember, check out twotruefreaks.com for all manner of Star Wars wonderfulness. Especially with Episode 7 coming up. Thank you very much for listening to this heartfelt diatribe. I hope you'll let me know what you think. Again, I keep saying these only happen as long as people are interested in listening to them. So let me know what you thought. Okay, as normal, uh, part of the show where I address feedback from people on the previous episode. The advantage of this one not having a regular release schedule means I get to address feedback in a timely fashion. And you're not waiting 400 weeks like you do on Hey Kids. Uh, David Walker messaged me because he was very upset, in a kidding way, that I name-dropped everyone who was on Who True Freaks except him. And I humbly apologised, and I really didn't mean it, and I'm very sorry, Dev. Love Dev, got a lot of time for Dev. Many at Thought Bubble, lovely man. So I do apologise, Dev, for dropping the name of every single person who appears on Two True Freaks except David Walker, because he's a really nice guy. He did point out that the original DVD version of Batman Forever was edited for some reason. Um, I only ever saw Batman Forever in the cinema, and I only ever have watched it a couple of times, I think, when I've come across it on television. I don't own that one on DVD. So thank you for pointing that out. Although he didn't know Temple of Doom was edited. So that's a good little tit for tat. Tat for tit, as somebody once said. The first email I received about the Band in Britain episode I did, it was a very salacious title. You know, I did that deliberately to try and attract people, more than the seven people that normally listen. Uh, it was from Chris Franklin. Hello, Chris. Hi, Andy. I know we live in a small town in Kentucky, but I assure you Cindy is not my sister, just my wife. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Slip. Freudian slip. Freudian, possibly. I don't know. Whatever. Fro- the only Freud I ever liked was Emma. Emma Freud was nice. Even we frown on that in Kentucky, but you can marry your second cousin. Excellent, good. Thank you for the kind words on Supermates. You're very welcome. If you're not listening to Supermates, you should be. I, too, have always been fascinated by censorship. It's amazing to look back at what was deemed offensive even a few short years ago to compare to what is currently heard on TV or published in comics. I don't recall too many examples springing to mind with modern US shows, although Fox supposedly banned the X-Files episode with the disturbing incestual redneck family for a small time. When they re-heard it, they promoted it as forbidden TV, so it may have just been a marketing scheme. Yeah, that was called Home. I like that one. And Supernatural did a very, very similar episode in the first season. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a similar thing. Sam and Dean ran across a redneck family who hunted people. And it was one of the few times Sam and Dean have hunted non-demons, because Dean does make mention at the end of it of going, I hate people. 
Chris continues, uh, your episode jog memories of the Magnum show with Sinatra, even though I was pretty young when that heard. I do remember it being a very powerful episode. I do believe my mother was in tears by the end, but then again, a Hallmark card commercial could get her waterworks running. <laughs> Whom Gods Destroy is an interesting track. I always liked it, mostly due to Yvonne Craig's brawless appearance. Batgirl assuring I would be straight in my formative years. <laughs> I think mine was Linda Carter or Lindsay Wagner. It was one of those two. But I was surprised to learn it was somewhat reviled in Trek fandom. It's often cast as a low-rent remake of Dagger of the Mind, and I can kind of see that. I think the hate has more to do with the behind-the-scenes matters, such as Nimoy's angry letter to the producers concerning Spock's dim-witted indecision at the climax. Apparently the actor was quite upset with Spock's treatment in season 3 and you can't really blame him. The empathy is dull. I do like the showcase on the selfless bond between Kirk, Spock and McCoy but it's an obvious budget saver. It does get a bit nasty for Trek as does Whom Gods Destroys. I'm a bit surprised the gamesters of Triskelion didn't get skipped over in England. Kirk is whipped on camera and the show is filled with fight scenes. Then there is the added uncomfortable idea of what Uhura's thrall is doing to her in the cell. Speaking of Trek, I greatly anticipate your top 10 Trek episode and I quite enjoyed your carnival opening. Great stuff, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, yeah, the game says Triskelion's just so ridiculously over the top, though, isn't it? But this is one of the things when we, we talk about censorship, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. And that's probably why it is so fascinating to talk about, because something will get banned, and then something that is pretty much identical will get banned and no one will care. And it's all to do with, certainly over here, there is, there's stuff... The BBC would show stuff in Blake 7 and even in Doctor Who that was probably just as strong as those episodes of Star Trek, but they get a pass because the BBC made them. Certainly the Doctor being drowned at the end of Deadly Assassin is quite intense. Or certainly was when I was a kid, probably not so much nowadays, but that passed with no problems on its initial erring, although I do understand it was trimmed a little bit for subsequent repeats. Thank you very much, Chris, for emailing in. The Top Ten Treks episode is coming along nicely. I've still got four to rewatch and write about, but as of this writing, that one is, is pottering along very well. David Gutierrez emailed about Glittering Delight, saying, Hey, that was something else. Very interesting topic. I enjoyed this one very much. Can't add very much, but I was glad to listen. Well, thank you very much, David. I, I am glad that you were glad to listen and uh, appreciate it. You listening? Yeah. That's, you know, talking circles. Problem will be not scripted. Just run off at the mouth. Ron Sadowski emailed back. Hello, Ron, of the Dinner for Geeks podcast. Andrew, good show. Unique and interesting aspect of pop culture in Great Britain. I really have nothing to compare it to here. Censorship in the strict terms was not an issue, as far as I can recall. We did have some local standards that certain TV stations would enforce on their own. I have found some examples in old newspapers where the network movie of the week was replaced with a different film, more in keeping with local tastes. Examples of this are network broadcasts of Goodbye Columbus and Summer of 42, in 1976, which were replaced on one or more of the local stations with Goldfinger and a Fistful of Dollars. Best I can tell was that the station in question was more struck on sexual issues as opposed to violence. The only other example of this was at the same station, which was a UFHABC affiliate in the 70s, would not run the TV show Soap. They may have run it after the news or later to fulfil their network agreement, but never in prime time, and no matter how late it was scheduled. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much. Ron, what addition to that not so much censorship over here MASH erred without a laugh track and the BBC did inadvertently err an episode once with a laugh track and got a 
ton of complaints about her. Um, I don't know. I don't know why the mention of soap made me mention mash, but Ron continues sort of a correction in my depiction of The Prisoner as a British show striving for an American audience. I felt you misunderstood my point. What I was trying to point out was that McGowan had only planned a seven-episode series, but to sell it overseas was asked to make 20-plus, with the show ended up with 17 in total. Also, McGowan being as popular as he was ended up making Ice and Zebra in the middle of filming The Prisoner, so we got to Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. My only point was, even with these issues, The Prisoner is a brilliant series. Now, imagine if the series had been much more focused, how powerful it might have ended up. I've often thought, Ron, of just watching The Seven that McGowan says are core Prisoner episodes and seeing what I think of just watching it in that way. Whenever I watch The Prisoner, I always tend to rewatch all of them because all of them are fun on some level. But yeah, yeah, my apologies. I, I misunderstood what you were saying, though, so that was my mistake. Thank you very much for emailing in, Mr. Sadowski. Luke Giaconetti also emailed, say, this episode is banned. Banned, I say! <laughs> Love Luke's email titles. Andrew, censored. Leyland, just finished your latest censored episode of The Palace of Glittering Delights, and I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed your censored coverage of the various shows either banned or exiled to late night by the censored BBC and other British television programmers. As you may have gleaned from our correspondence, I'm big on personal choice and personal responsibility. I like being able to choose what I watch without Big Brother, or Auntie Beeb if you prefer, leaning over my shoulder to scold me. But that very nature in me makes the topic of why things are censored or otherwise modified to be less offensive, one which needs to be examined and understood. So kudos for you for the topic and for your speculation on the why of such inane decisions. Well, we share that in common, Luke. I'm fascinated by censorship. Because I'm fascinated by why it seems so arbitrary and it seems so random and something that gets passed with no problems one week will have problems the week after and stuff like that does interest me. I do recall reading in Starlog that there were a couple of episodes of Star Trek that were not programmed in the south of America. I don't know the details. They, They did list the episode but I can't remember what issue it was and I've not had time to go back and look at it before I recorded this. A couple of quick notes. I'm a big fan of several of the video nasties you mentioned, including one of my all-time favourite Italian horror films, Zombie Bloodsuckers, a.k.a. Zombie 2, a.k.a. Zombie, a.k.a. Island of the Flesh Eaters, a.k.a. Zombie Flesh Eaters, a.k.a. that one where the zombie fights a shark. The vault of startling monster horror tales of Terror Crew, including myself, covered this one as part of a retrospective on Italian horror, if listeners are interested. This film definitely fits the bill of a video nasty and is quite the gore-soaked fur, if you're into that sort of thing. Another video nasty you mentioned was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Huge fan of this film, and specifically for the lack of blood and gore in the film. I know what some folks might be saying. What? TCM has a lack of blood and gore? It's true, Toby Hooper could barely afford to shoot the film, let alone do any special effects. So there is essentially nothing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the way of traditional splatter. The meat hook scene, for instance, is done entirely with foreshadowing and suggestion. And yet, when you ask first-time viewers about it, they insist that we see the hook go through. We do not. Always funny to me that a film with such a reputation of splatter is one of the tamest from a purely objective use of gore of the era. Yeah, I've never seen Zombie Flash Eaters, but I have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it was one of those films, like Psycho, it was one of those films that you have an idea of what it's going to be like, and then you watch it and it's not like that at all. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is a really good suspense film, and for me really wasn't deserving of the video nasty tag that it was labelled with. I'm not a gore fiend, I'm not a splatter fiend. 
I do like my horror to be more psychological, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a big surprise when I watched it, because my wife is a splatter fan. So I have seen quite a lot of them. Oh, we have, we've never seen Zombie Flesh Eater, so I'm going to have to track that down. Luke continues, the topic of censorship over potentially offensive political issues on The Six Million Dollar Man and Star Trek The Next Generation reminded me of similar situations on the Japanese show Ultra 7. The third show in the Ultra series, featuring Ultra Q and Ultra Man, episode 12 of Ultra 7, from Another Planet with Love, featured an alien, Spell, who resembled an atomic bomb survivor. Furthermore, alien Spell's race was trying to harvest the blood of humans to repopulate their species after being devastated by a war. Unsurprisingly, this was very offensive to actual survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the episode was pulled from circulation and is still banned to this day, not even being included on the DVD release. Strangely, when US cable network TNT broadcast a tongue-in-cheek dubbed version of Ultra 7 in the 90s, the episode aired completely uncut, albeit with new dialogue. A similar banning would occur with the Toho film Prophecies of Nostradamus, the climax of which featured hideously mutated survivors of a nuclear war. Listeners interested in this film can find an episode on my show Earth, Destruction Directive. Both of the shows that Luke mentions are available on tutrafreaks.com. Keep up the censored good work, Luke. Thank you very much, Luke. Since recording that episode, I have learned that the episode of Star Trek Patterns of Force is also... I don't know if it's still banned in Germany, but I think they can only show it after a certain time, which uh, which I thought was was quite interesting. Another email I received was just called Band in Britain. It was from Timothy Elliott. Hello, Timothy. Greetings, Andrew. Once more, you have delivered a smashing good show from across the pond. I found your tale of censorship in England very enlightening. As an American and a connoisseur of British telly, I always felt Great Britain was more open-minded about what it broadcast than the States. One of the reasons I watched Monty Python, other than it being brilliant and with the occasional boob sighting... Being old enough to spend my childhood with no cable TV, we had to settle for three major channels, ABC, NBC and CBS, with a few UFH channels to tide us over. My only experience with censorship were with Star Trek and the X-Files, one of the local UFH UFH stations, sorry, would show Star Trek the original series each day after school. One episode, and the children shall lead, was always absent from the lineup. My guess is because the episode featured a friendly angel and was too hot for my North Texas town. Maybe they were just doing you a favour, Timothy, and the children shall lead his cack. It was years before I was able to watch the episode on sci-fi, continues Tim. Star Trek The Next Generation's first episode, Conspiracy, was only ever shown late at night because of the graphic nature of a person's head exploding due to phaser fire. Yeah, that's probably the reason BBC censored it. A similar situation around the X-Files Season 4 episode, Home. The episode did get a viewer discretion tag at the beginning, but Fox never re-ran the episode during the X-Files run. That was mentioned earlier on. Yeah, so a couple of people have mentioned that one. Before I let you go, Andrew, just a little feedback for your previous episode of Palace of Gritting Delights. In your last of fave episodes, I was thrilled to hear you mention Dalek from season one. I was afraid it was going to be Blink, and I do not dislike Blink, I just don't have the high regard as most Who fans do. I'm an old-school classic Who fan, I'm slowly warming up to New Who. I think some of my reluctance to embrace the new show is the fan base, especially New Who fans who dismiss the classic show out of hand because it looks cheap and it's slow and boring. Maybe I'm just being stubborn old fan, but I don't want these kids playing in my yard. Keep the show coming, Andrew. I think Palace of Glittering Delights will be a nice replacement for Hey Kids Comics if that show has to come to an end. P.S. Did you watch Misfits when it was on? And if so, what did you think? I really enjoyed series one to three, but started to lose interest after Robert Sheehan left. Uh, We are are exactly the same, Timothy. Uh, Angela and I greatly enjoyed Misfits. And then just lost interest in it completely after Sheehan left. So we're exactly the same as you. According to Bleeding Cool, it was good. 
but we just we, he was such a, an engaging presence. We never watched the rest of it, so we'll have to see. Uh, I do recommend Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes if you haven't seen it. I've just been catching up with Ashes to Ashes, and it's really very good. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, everyone that emailed in. Thank you, everyone who listened. That's always appreciated. If you have any comments on the new show opening or in general, you know, I'm I'm open to topics of discussion on this show. It's my little side thing. You don't know when you're going to get one. It doesn't have a regular release schedule, so that kind of makes it more pleasurable to do, because you can take your time with it. I do know the next episode will be my top ten treks, because as I mentioned in my reply to Chris Franklin, I am more than three quarters of the way through writing that. I've only got, as of this recording, four more episodes to rewatch and talk about, or write about, or whatever. So uh, that'll be coming along soon, pretty soon, I would imagine. Let me know what you thought of this one. Unless you're just going to be a rampant negative prequel basher. In which case, I've heard all of the prequel bashing before and I'm not really that interested in it. If you have something positive to say, get in touch. I'd like to discuss the merits of the prequels, though. And I'm not against discussing the demerits, but just relentless bashing, you know, gets me down a little bit. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the emails. Everything else, Palace is available. Whenever on 2TrueFreaks.com, whenever I release it, hey kids comments at virginmedia.com is how you can email me. Thank you very much. I have been Andrew Leyland. Goodbye. <laughs>